Dmitry Gurov does not take love seriously. His wife annoys him, long-term relationships scare him, and his love life consists of brief affairs with women he meets at vacation resorts. In Anna, he finds someone who appears to be the usual victim, traveling alone, tired of her husband, and unlikely to make any effective demands for intimacy, something that seems to be revealed in the diminutive portability of her traveling companion. This time, however, he has met a match too powerful for his predatory ambitions. When is love's bite bigger than its bark? Today we'll be discussing Anton Chekhov's The Lady with a Little Dog. This is Wes Alwyn. And this is Aaron Olonik. And you're listening to Subtext. So before we begin, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for The Partially Examined Life, we won't always be here and not all episodes of Subtext will appear here. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice, either by going to subtextpodcast.com slash subscribe, or by searching for us within the app itself. Okay, so today we are doing two Chekhov short stories. So I'd read one of these a long time ago, The Lady with a Little Dog. And then the other one I hadn't read, The House with the Mezzanine. And really... I've only, I haven't read a lot of Chekhov's short stories. I've been exposed more to the plays, but why, why did you choose these and what's your history with Chekhov? Yeah, so I suggested these because I, I know Chekhov really well. I've been in love with Chekhov probably even like just Chekhov the man since I was maybe about 13. As you probably know, Wes, I have a, a picture of Chekhov visiting Tolstoy at Yasnaya Polyana over my desk in my mm. apartment. And yeah, I mean, I've always had this kind of fascination with Russian culture that was really, really big in my family for some reason from the time that I was a very little girl. I This is kind of apropos of nothing, but I remember in, in the first grade we had the, I don't know why it was so early on, but you know those biography projects that you do in elementary school? Like usually people do them in like fifth or sixth grade where they they come dressed as a famous person and then do like a little speech as if they're that person. Mm. Everyone in my class, I remember like, and this will identify the time of my childhood, but all the boys came as like Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky and all the girls came as, I think it was Mia Hamm was really big at that time. So they came as Mia Hamm and I came as, um, Anastasia Romanov. <laughs> and I was oh, wow. like, I was obsessed with the Romanovs and obsessed with Russian culture. So I got really, really into reading Russian literature. And, and my, my first exposure to his work was the cherry orchard. Um, mm. it was my favorite play of his for kind of a brief period. My mom had me read it. And then coincidentally, just a few months later, I think they were mounting um, a production of it at the Yale Rep. I went to see it. I remember in in the first act, I had this kind of like transplendent experience. It was something in the combination maybe of, of the night outside. It was this really crisp fall night, I remember. And and then on the stage, they had this, this backdrop that was sort of this hazy orchard and then the Russian woods. And then I remember like the white dresses of all the, the women characters on mm. the stage. And, and I was just totally, you know, transfixed by this. And then there was intermission. And then the second act, everyone came out in modern clothes and they had like cell phones in their hands. And they mm. had done this like modern update in the second half of the, of the play. And lots of things they did were, were gimmicks with the cell phones. Like, you know, they, instead of, you know, calling the, the manager of the estate, over, you know, they like called him on the cell phone and everyone laughed and like, the, you know, it was intentional. The, the actors mm. played to that. And so the spell was completely broken. And then Uncle Vanya and the seagull like rapidly rose in my, in my estimation after that. And then I started reading the short stories. But anyway, I guess it's just another 
Chekhov staging failure. He had a lot of those. Anyway, all of that to say that I was super into Chekhov and I have a long history with him. And these two short stories, I think, are they're some of his best known. Um, I don't I don't know if they're my favorite of his stories, but I mean, they're certainly incredible stories. Wh- which of the two would you say that you, you preferred? I, I really like them both, but I think for pure entertainment value, The House with the Mezzanine, there's something about it. One of the things I like about Chekhov is the kinds of people get into sort of philosophical discussions and debates or at the very, or not even necessarily that they will talk about extensively about their inner lives and, and what's going on with them. And, you know, I find that in his plays and I find that in some of these stories. So in the mezzanine, that debate between Lita and the protagonist, that's one of the things I really enjoy about Chekhov. And it kind of, there's a, there's a nice build up to it in the mezzanine story where he's an artist and he's um, idle and, and all that stuff. And then he's being treated by this young girl as if he has no <laughs> interest in practical matters. And then he explodes and has a big argument with her and ruins his prospective romantic engagement with the girl's sister. What's your history with, with Chekhov? Many years ago, I had read some short stories, including The Lady with a Little Dog. And then it was just a few years ago that I saw and read Uncle Vanya for the first time. And actually, we have a, I did a prequel subtext on this with a guest. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Although we don't get that much into the play. But I became obsessed with the play and wrote a 10,000-word, uh, <laughs> still incomplete, essay on Uncle Vanya. I think one of the one of the reasons I became obsessed with it is just the excellent BBC production, which is the first that I saw from 1983 or something like that. Who's in that one? The actor is uh, David Warner, and he's Constantine in the 1968 version of film version of The Seagull by Sidney Lumet. Oh, okay. I know him, his face, but not his name. And then he's Uncle Vanya in the a 1991 production directed by Gregory Mosher. We don't really know. Mm-mm. Ian Holm is our, is also in it. Oh. Yeah, so excellent. So yeah, Uncle Vanya, I wrote a lot about that. And I think th- there's a lot of rumination in Chekhov on different sorts of intellectual or spiritual aspirations and their conflict. You know, So in Uncle Vanya, you have a professor and you have Uncle Vanya who wanted to be a great intellectual but gave up that life in order to support the professor and then you have a doctor, which is a reappearing character for Chekhov. And of course, Chekhov was himself also a doctor. And then you have the whole concept of work. So there's a lot of rumination about work in Uncle Vanya and I think in other Chekhov plays, mm. including Three Sisters, which I watched not too long ago. And it's work and its relation to intellectual aspirations. So you get some of that argument played out in the mezzanine story. So the lady with the little dog is also an interesting reflection on on i think intimacy and love and i think the work thing comes up a little bit in the sense of you know you you it begins with a vacation it begins with people who are away from any occupation that they might have and and talk about being bored right so that's Mm -hmm. the that's the sort of beginning of that by the way i wanted to say you know you have that tolstoy Chekhov picture and some of the background reading I was doing for this. I thought that their friendship was really interesting in part because they're such, they're so different as writers, right? Chekhov is an entirely Dostoevsky or Tolstoy. You've entered a very, very different world and he's innovating into much, much different territory, territory that I actually prefer. I thought it was funny that after seeing Uncle Vanya, 
Tolstoy said to Chekhov or was said to have said, you know, I can't stand Shakespeare, but your plays are even worse than his. <laughs> <laughs> Tolstoy is maybe the only man, uh, whoever lived, who could get away with saying that. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, and then you talked of Chekhov's, you know, he struggled with, with the plays. I know the seagull in particular, right? Did not get a good reception from the audience. I think it was booed. And then I read a little bit of Chekhov's diary, which is not very, there's not a lot to it, but he says, it is true that I fled from the theater, but only when the play was over. So I like that image of Chekhov just <laughs> seeing, seeing the audience boo one of his plays and then running out of the theater. <laughs> I don't know about, about Chekhov's opinion of his own work, though, and his own staging. There was the initial disaster and then the triumph with the seagull because of that Maybe it was the Moscow theater production, I think, the one mm. that had um, Stravinsky as Trigorin. And I know that Chekhov really didn't like Stravinsky, or, mm. or they had a very difficult relationship, and he, he didn't really appreciate Stravinsky's acting or his stagings. Or so, oh, really? I didn't know Yeah, that. yeah. So I kind of wonder, like, you know, what Chekhov was envisioning, because now, of course, in a post-Stravinsky world, we're so influenced by his... By, by the way that he kind of shaped the theater. I wonder what Chekhov didn't like about him and, and how that maybe influenced um, what he saw as, as certain failures of uh, the stagings of his plays. But mm. um, I, I don't know enough about it to know if he gave any specific criticisms. But I know that, like, for instance, a lot of his, his plays are, are played somewhat straight now. I know that, like, you know, the seagull, he envisioned as being more of a comedy. Um <laughs> So I think they're, they're a lot maybe more, um, at least in terms of the way we view them now, they were intended to be a lot more tongue-in-cheek, I think, and more satirical, maybe. Mm. Um, Interesting. Well, they are in a way avant-garde, and I think they had a tremendous influence in shaping what we now know as the theater, mm -hmm. right? I think you can watch them and you can get that these are experimental avant-garde productions in a way because of the way things are plotted and, and kind of meandering, which I think there's a meandering quality to his short stories as well mm -hmm. which is nice so he started off right with the short stories he started off writing comedy sketches right he, yeah. even some some of them were like he was for a while he was putting out a lot of little hundred line he had to keep himself to a hundred lines there's a great letter where he writes his editor asking if he can increase the line count to 120 that it will help him <laughs> stay sane if he just has that 20 lines of, of padding. By his own admission, he didn't really take his writing seriously early on. He thought of it as a way to make money while he was in school and a way to support his family. So he received a letter of praise from some point from a writer whose name I forget, which really affected him and really in his reply to this writer that he says, you know, yeah, I haven't actually been taking my writing seriously, but I will now, now that you say this. So he did. And, you know, before he died in his 40s, he did a lot of great work. All right. So should we start with the lady with the little dog? Yeah, let's do it. I tried to give a lot of thought to what the little dog is doing in the story, mm. <laughs> what it represents, why it's there, why it's in the title. With Chekhov, I think he would probably be resistant to the idea that there's any symbolism at all in his stories. Maybe, maybe that maybe that's the wrong reading. But you know, his his works just seem so realistic, and there are so many kind of like inconsequential details, which I we can talk about, especially in this story. That it's sort of famous for certain inconsequential details. So I would hesitate to put too much significance onto the dog, but at the same time, I think it is really important. I think that it marks the, the connection 
between Gaurav and Anna at the very beginning, right? It's he he sort of approaches her through the dog. And then later when he when he goes to her town that's just called S, I think, he sees her and or no, he sees the dog first, maybe, and he's he goes to call out to the dog and he's so moved that he can't remember the dog's name. You know, I don't know. I, I she's she's just identified in Yalta as being the lady with the little dog and and maybe that gives her a sense of superficiality and it's a it's a false blind. Yes it is, yeah. When I was thinking about this I thought of Paris Hilton at some point. <laughs> if the dog could be in a purse it would be even better. Yeah, and and one wonders, I mean nobody else is referred to by that, but one wonders if in a place like Yalta you know, there's like the lady with the little dog and maybe there's the man with the purple tie mm-hmm, and the, you know, mm-hmm. because you're seeing everybody in this holiday atmosphere and never really, you know, you're passing each other all the time and, and maybe you might coexist with them, but never learn their name. And so it becomes a, a point of identification and then a point through which, or, or rather the, the avenue through which Gaurav actually learns that she's not just this little superficial Woman, And so maybe there's something here about, you know, uh, I, th- I think there's a lot about surfaces and deeper realities uh, in the story, too. So, so maybe this is something that is like a misleading surface that will have deeper consequences later. I'm putting it in a kind of vague way. Yeah. It's telling about him that he, he is confronted with a type right? Mm-hmm. Although this is also a feature of Chekhov's writing that he's, because he was humorist in a way, that's the way he, he begins his career. A lot of his stories are about examinations of different, or, the, or their characters in a way are types, even though they don't end up that way in the story, they end up as very, as, as very nuanced in a way. That's the premise of the story. But in this case, you know, it's, it's important to the character of Gurov because that's the way he is going to confront someone like this. He is on vacation for the sake of having affairs and he's identified someone who I think he thinks he can, you know, he wants something light, light is a word used in the story. So in her, he identifies the kind of person that he can have a light affair with and the dog signifies that. There's a lot of things I think going on that you can think about with the, with the little dog. And of course, a lot of that would go well beyond Chekhov's conscious intentions in doing this and whether or not he wants to, I think that's a kind of big discussion in the secondary literature, whether you should think too much about the symbolism in his stories. Cause I think a lot of people do make a lot of that and the tension mm. between that and his, his realism. But there is a cool contrast in the story between the little dog in the beginning and the big angry dogs who are attacking a beggar at the gate at the very end of the story. Yeah which is kind of a symbol of Gurov's position at that point. The tables have been turned on him. You know, with the small white dog, I'm reminded of a... You you probably don't watch Rick and Morty, right? I've only seen a few clips. Okay. This is an animated sci-fi cartoon, but there's there's an episode in which a small white dog develops human-level intelligence or then, then even super intelligence and basically takes over the world makes other dogs intelligent and and is very vengeful <laughs> about how it's been treated. And one of the, the big turning moments for that dog is watching a documentary about how wolves have been successfully bred <laughs> into these harmless little cute creatures. So I think that's part of what's going on with a small dog. And it's it's meant to represent in part her inner life, her breeding of her own passions Anna's passions and desires into something that's more diminutive, into something that's cute, into something that doesn't have to be taken seriously. 
So, you know, little dogs are all bark, right? And, and no bite or their bites aren't very effective. In the same way, you know, he's, Gurov thinks he's safe from her. He knows from his past affairs that at some point she's going to get up unhappy. She's going to make demands on him. But this is something he's always had a way of coping with. In this story, that'll turn out not to be the case. She will, she will get under his skin. Her, her bite will mean something more than he's used to. But hmm. that's his initial starting point. You know, I love, I love the scene where they meet, right? Where he's, he's noticed her boredom and... Then there's the spits, the dog growling at him yeah. as he shakes his finger at it. What's the sequence? Does he shake his finger first and then the dog starts growling? He calls the spits and then he shakes his finger at it when the dog comes over and then the dog growls at him. Right. And then he shakes his finger again. Right. <laughs> right. What does that say about him and his, you know. That he's more of a cat person, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he's beckoning, but then he's. He's saying yes, and he's saying no. He's calling to it, and then he's shaking his finger like the dog should not Mm -hmm. respond to the call. So I think there's, of course, there's something about his method of seduction. It's a little bit of a warning. You know, one of the things I love about about Chekhov, this this isn't really told through the first person, the way that House with a Mezzanine is, where you get a lot of like really funny, because you're hearing everything through the narrator's perspective, you could hear the narrator's sort of like rationalizations for things. And and there's a lot of very intended funny moments on the part of Chekhov where you're getting this insight into the way the person is thinking. And he's, you know, maybe thinking grandiose things about himself or something that are, it comes through and it's very humorous. And here it's told through the third person perspective, but I think that it's also Chekhov also kind of like dips into the guy's mind a lot and maybe expresses things through Gurov's point of view. So we get his sense, for instance, that women are, an inferior race and that he has all of these really negative associations with women, despite being something of a ladies man and, a, you know, a perpetual womanizer, which I think makes sense. But I, I wonder if, and, and, you know, not to play psychiatrist here, but there seems to me to be a lot of self-hatred in this guy that he's not really aware of. So I like this, this idea that he's shaking his finger at the dog as like almost a warning not to get involved with him because he sort of knows what he is maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about Annie Hall while reading this story in part because there's memory and, and nostalgia actually play a role in this story as well in the way that they do in, in Annie Hall, but also the way it starts off where he's got a wife who she thinks of herself as a thinking person. Mm. Uh, He thinks of her as narrow minded and graceless and not really that bright. His wife is someone who, takes herself seriously and i think he's looking for women in general who don't take themselves seriously and he's looking for relationships that he doesn't have to take seriously and he's conflicted about women right he's women are inferior but he's ill at ease in the company of men and mm-hmm. experience has taught him that intimacies become a burden but he always forgets that when he meets a new woman and quote unquote, you know, he wants to live or he wanted to live. He's, he associates these affairs with some sort of vitality. That's what's driving him. Some sense that there's, that there's more to life, that there's, that there's something more vital to be had out of life. But it's not like he's, he's in a loveless marriage and he's thinking, oh, I need to find someone to fall in love with. He's in a loveless marriage with someone he doesn't like. And, you know, his idea of vitality is, is really superficial. So mm. I think his mode of viewing women is a, it's a product of what he 
thinks he needs from relationships, which is the superficiality. So it's important to him to view women as superficial and the cute little dog, right, is, a, is again, it's a representation of that. Diminutive, cute, doesn't have any bite. I think you're right when he, the shaking of the finger, it is a warning about who he is. He's pretty confident in his ability to ward off the negative consequences of these affairs, which is to say he's, he's pretty confident that he can escape unscathed and not get involved and not have his emotions get pulled into things. And even if he's hurting people, he can do that without too much of a uh, sting of, of conscience. So that mm. finger, I think, is about that ability to ward off those sorts of things. I think what you talk about, too, with his wife, that sort of gets to this sort of blending of Chekhov's and Gurov's perspectives, because I kind of wonder if Gurov is giving his wife a fair assessment. You know, I, w I wonder if we're just seeing her through his mm -hmm. perspective and if she's actually a more interesting person. I mean, he has he, he thinks that he could size up all these people and and he, and he's bored by his wife. And she certainly does sound, you know, dull and pedantic and, and annoying. But we also... I think have to take all of these assessments with a little bit of a grain of salt because he he can sort of reduce everyone to these sorts of um, types in the same way that he tries to reduce the, the lady with a little dog to a type and she mm -hmm. turns out to you know resist that. But I think that that sense that I'm getting of of him not really giving anyone a fair shake, I, I think also plays out in a little bit of I don't know if you felt this a little bit of incredulity about whether or not he really is transformed by Anna. I think it's clear at the end that he is, but his his transformation, we we wonder in the beginning if this is like one of the stages of his womanizing, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. he goes through, as he says, you know, the same sort of pattern with all of these conquests. And one wonders if this is yet another uh, version of that, because uh, according to his sort of, you know, the, the types of women that he that he goes through, you know, he describes one as as uh, that great moment of when the women are, are are sort of like too ravenous and then the lace on their underwear becomes like scales. So this is a good example of what you've just been talking about, the reductiveness of his way of viewing people and the harshness. Um, so he's in They've just been kissing in her hotel room after hanging out for a week. And this is the first time they, they hook up. Her hotel room was stuffy and smelled of the perfumes she had bought in a Japanese shop. Gurov, looking at her now, thought, what meetings there are in life. From the past, he had kept the memory of carefree, good-natured women, cheerful with love, grateful to him for their happiness, however brief. And of women, his wife, for example, who loved without sincerity, with superfluous talk, affectedly, with hysteria, with an expression as if it were not love, not passion, but something more significant. And of those two or three very beautiful, cold ones, in whose faces a predatory expression would suddenly flash, a stubborn wish to take, to snatch from life more than it could give. And these were women not in their first youth, capricious, unreasonable, domineering, unintelligent, and when Gurov cooled towards them, their beauty aroused hatred in him, and the lace of their underwear seemed to him like scales. That's really great. So you were talking about his view of the predatory types of women. That yeah, and reading this analysis, you know, I feel a kind of resistance towards his point of view. 
on the one hand, you know, you kind of trust him because he's a guy who's had a lot of experience, has known a lot of people, and therefore must be able to classify within a certain margin of error a lot of different types of women. But on the other hand, there's there's something about this that is is so cruel and diminishing that I, I don't really buy it 100%. Well, there's a sociopathic quality to this, I think. he's mm-hmm. There's a lack of compassion. So even in saying, saying, ah, what meetings there are in life, that's kind of a variation on deep emotion. He wants to enjoy intimacy and, and deeper feelings, but by way of this superficialization of them and the whole idea of carefree, good-natured women, cheerful with love, right? He doesn't want any demands made on them, on him. Mm-hmm. And the women who do make demands are like snakes, the predatory. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously, yeah, this passage reveals something is, is quite broken with the way he views women because he views them through the lens of satisfying his sexual appetites without, without any, anything deeper. Yeah. And, and to take a step back a little bit, I guess the, the first time I read this was after I had read Anna Karenina. I saw this as a lesser imitation of Anna Karenina. I think in a lot of ways it was meant, of course, to call back to Tolstoy. I think a lot of what Chekhov wrote was probably in response to Tolstoy as his forebear and sort of older mentor is maybe too strong of a word, but I mean, it's really apples and oranges, of course, but the, the similarities are there. Like the, obviously the title character of Anna has the same name as, as the, the lady with a little dog. And they're both tormented by guilt and von Dieteritz is a lot like Alexei Karenin. And of course, Gurov is, is the sort of Vronsky figure, though he's far less sympathetic than Vronsky. And so when I read this for the first time, I, I was really like, oh, I didn't like this. You know, <laughs> Gurov is such a bad guy. And, and um, I couldn't get out of my head that the scene where that right after they've had an affair, Anna is tormented by guilt and he sits there and eats the watermelon. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit after the part that I just read. But yeah, that's... Yeah. that's- yeah, it's so great. So you're talking about appetites, you know, and I'm thinking about, I, you know, thinking still about the watermelon. And it's funny because that watermelon sort of worked on me in the way that, that Anna works on Gurov, you know, in, in a sort of after the fact, like, you know, you can't, can't stop thinking about it. And maybe, maybe the story is better than you think, you know, mm. but that, that watermelon, that cruelty as she's sitting there looking, I love that, like a, like a sinful woman in a painting with her hair all down mm-hmm. around her sitting there dejectedly. And, and going on about how, how awful she feels and how terrible this is. And this is obviously her first time having an affair and it's all old hat for him. And he's just sitting there like cutting himself watermelon and eating it and just being like, oh, it's fine, relax, you know, that, that kind of thing. And so he, he, he dismisses all of her, her concerns and he's, he thinks that, that this is all tiresome and I'm sure he's, he's dealt with this before. You know, that, that's kind of the mystery of this, I suppose. He's heard all this before He'll have these affairs, and then he has to sit and deal with the fact that these women, or, or at least this type of woman, gets very upset and, and has this whole, you know, racked conscience where they're sitting there bemoaning the fact that they went through with this and they're ruined and all that. And for him to be able to eat a watermelon during that, it's, you know, he just doesn't, doesn't care about them. And so that's kind of like further evidence that you think that he's not going to care about this woman and it's just going to be one more notch on his belt or whatever and then that changes but i yeah i think the the watermelon the post-coital eating especially of fruit right is kind of a trope right you know Mm. sex and then there's the you know the kind of self-indulgent sharing of some kind of meal in bed as a extension of sensuality even after 
sexual desire has been satisfied and people have gone into their kind of post orgasmic <laughs> haze, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. But that's a share, you know, that's usually something shared. And he's capable of doing that by himself, even as the other person is dejected and worried that they've lost that any respect, which is the thing that she's expresses a lot of worry about at various points. So he can ignore her, and that's the that's the way he, in which he he's misunderstood the situation, right? So the little dog turns out to be a misrepresentation of her inner life and its capacity to affect him, because he will be affected. He doesn't know it now, but she is going to get under his skin, and it's precisely her demands, the things that he associates with scales and something reptilian and demanding. It's those demands which are going to get under his skin and produce a deeper emotion in him, if you can believe that. I think part of the track you were on is to say that we don't really know at the end of the story how seriously to take his transformation because it could just be a part of the whole cycle. Mm -hmm. But either way, she does end up getting under his skin. So he's not going to be able to just sit and eat watermelons, so to speak, for the duration of their connection. Well, and he has a series of, of different reactions to her uh, during that, you know, their, their initial affair in Yalta. While he's eating the, the watermelon, she's saying, God, forgive me. Um, her eyes are filling with tears. This is terrible. And he responds, it's like you're justifying yourself. <laughs> and she says, you know, how can I justify myself? I'm a bad, low woman. I despise myself. And and she goes through all of these, you know, various um, talking about how sinful it is, what she's what she's done, and and how much she despises herself. He's listening to all this, and then the narrator says, "Gurov was bored listening. He mm-hmm. was annoyed by the naive tone, by this repentance, so unexpected and out of place, and yet it seems not out of place. Had it not been for the tears in her eyes, one might have thought she was joking or playing a role." He reads in this, you know, what to him seems like a stock reaction but what for her is is uh you know a legitimate reaction to her first affair and i love when she says um sin is vile to me i don't know what i'm doing you know simple people say the unclean one has beguiled me and now i can say of myself that the unclean one has beguiled me Mm. i guess a parallel there between garov and the devil Mm -hmm. (laughs) that he Mm -hmm. sees the unclean one yeah, you could read the story that way, by the way. Yeah, uh, him as a devil, as Satan. Oh, re- oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And then later, they're strolling around and on the embankment, and uh, he's indifferent to her. Then he's bored and annoyed. And then when they're out strolling, she complained that she slept poorly and that her heart beat anxiously, kept asking the same questions, troubled now by jealousy, now by fear that he did not respect her enough. And often on the square or in the garden when there was no one near them, he would suddenly draw her to him and kiss her passionately. And so now it seems like he likes this or is, is attracted to her guilt. He doesn't, he doesn't find it boring anymore. Now she's sort of expressing her guilt and then it's punctuated by him suddenly kissing her passionately. Yeah. So it's, this feels very realistic to me because of course, you know, one going through an experience like this can have a, a succession of very conflicting emotions towards towards something um, like this happening. And, and Gaurav is, is going through all of those. Because we get this really deep glimpse into his perspective, what may be very natural, which is a series of conflicting emotions, seems suspect to us. Like we, we don't know how to, how to take it, even though this may be sort of hyper-realistic and how we ourselves would, would experience these, you know, succession of, of conflicting or contradictory emotions. Yeah, it's so psychologically well done. Mm. I'm just just backing up to the room where he's bored, you know, you then you annoyed by the naive tone. And then at some point he asks her, "What is it you want?" 
Mm. So it's as if he he's been hit over the head with the very idea that someone else wants something and it's it's confusing to him and he can't imagine what that would be and she talks about honesty and um a pure life and honesty is it's something that'll also come up at the and truthfulness right at the it'll come up at the end of the story it'll be become a big deal we can talk about that when we get to it and then when you in the next phase they're hanging out going out there's a vacation-y scenic feel to what's going on. So there's a great scene when they're, after he learns her last name and they're looking at the sea, Yalta was barely visible through the morning mist. White clouds stood motionless on the mountaintops. And by the way, just an aside, this is kind of a feature of his style. These little forays into the scenic, you know, into a description of the environment. He doesn't overdo it. And it's not, I don't think he generally sets the scene this way. Rather, it's sort of a extension of the inner lives of the characters. He describes the environment in order to elaborate on that. So, mm. so Yalta was barely visible through the morning mist. White clouds stood motionless on the mountaintops. The leaves of the trees did not stir, cicadas called, and the monotonous, dull noise of the sea coming from below spoke of the peace of the eternal sleep that awaits us. So it had sounded below when neither Yalta nor Orianda were there. So it sounded now and would go on sounding with the same dull indifference when we are no longer here. And in this constancy, in this utter indifference to the life and death of each of us, there perhaps lies hidden the pledge of our eternal salvation the unceasing movement of life on earth, of unceasing perfection. Sitting beside the young woman who looked so beautiful in the dawn, appeased and enchanted by the view of this magical decor, sea, mountains, clouds, the open sky, Gurov reflected that, essentially, if you thought of it, everything was beautiful in this world, everything except for what we ourselves think and do when we forget the higher goals of being and our human dignity. It's kind of a pseudo epiphany in a way but it does reflect the first stage of her effect on him when she's you know after her talking about honesty in a pure life and it's it reflects his mode of what i've called pseudo intimacy which i've discussed in other episodes but which is to these connections to memory right the like he likes to remember these past relationships it's as if he can enjoy them you know, they're light, they're superficial, but he, he can kind of savor them and, and get more deeply emotional once he's away from them, once they've gone by. And then there's also this kind of, hey, I'm taking a vacation and I'm looking at the sea and, and enjoying the serenity and peacefulness of an environment. I can kind of connect to a person that way. But this talk of higher goals of being and and human dignity that think that's in a way the beginning of a transformation and then the point that you were at just comes just after that where there's a lot of strolling around admiring the sea her being jealous her fear of not being respected and then he's kind of excited by all of this i think he gets turned on in a way by that but also there's something transformative about their idleness. Chekhov uses that word and kisses in the broad daylight with a furtive look around and the fear that someone might see them, the heat, the smell of the sea and the constant flashing before their eyes of idle, smartly dressed, well-fed people. 
By the way, this is something that will come up in the mezzanine story as well. The kind of romance of other people's idleness. And we'll have to get into a discussion of what that means. But Chekhov, it's, it's deeply affecting, I think, both to Chekhov and in this moment to this character. I take that part as being pretty funny. Do you? Are we supposed to be amused by this? That you know. Well, I didn't. I didn't take it that way. Although I can understand why you laughed. Um, I mean, so it's it, pretty it, lofty. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an epiphany, right? So this is an epiphany scene, and uh, unfortunately, this this character's you know his his <laughs> callous frame of mind it means that we ought to treat an epiphany like this with suspicion and as something incomplete. It's it's an epiphany, but it's um, there's something false about it. I don't think it's completely false. It's on the way to something. I think you're right to, to point to this as being kind of the beginning of, of his transformation yeah. or the indication of his transformation. But I think the genius of Chekhov is that at the same time, this is a very false note to begin on. And, and a transformation can begin on a false note. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's, that's the premise of the whole story, right? You can be transformed by an illicit affair, right? And so this this falseness, I mean, everything is beautiful and and think of what we can do when we have these higher goals of being in our human dignity. You know, this is pretty lofty for for a guy who's just had uh, an affair and who, who treats people as, as being pretty disposable. That cleverness, that this can be legitimate and this can be the beginning of his legitimate transformation, and I believe it is. And at the same time, the idea that it's ridiculous, <laughs> I think, are really... They're made very uncomfortable bedfellows here, but that's actually very realistic. Yeah. It's still superficial, right? It's still like this is this is why I called it pseudo intimacy, because I think, you know, objectification and this sort of approach to relationships is a complicated thing. It's not just about treating people as pieces of meat, essentially. And he's extraordinarily selfish and he's using someone, but he's trying to approximate the emotions that you might get out of something more intimate and connected. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the story, he's talking about the excitement of meeting new women and how it, you know, again, vitality and, and it giving him a reason to live. And here he's, he's getting a nice serene feeling. So in the moment, it's all about lightness and lack of commitment, lack of, escaping any demands but in the context of memory he can have a deeper feeling about it and so that's his game his game is to Hmm. create a memory that can be something more than what it was in the moment because in the in the moment stuff is too much for him it's too demanding there's a connection between that nostalgic approach to love and the scenic stuff this, you know, this epiphany where he can enjoy the beauty of the world, right? The beauty of the world is always a good, <laughs> it's a good substitute for, mm. for human connection. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, he, the creature despairs of connections with people, but is, is extremely well connected to the natural environment and the, and the beauty of the world. So this is his, you know, for whatever his brokenness, it's an interesting pathway to the possibility of connection with people, which is this connection to the natural world. Yeah, and, and even that natural world is a little bit unnatural too, right? Like the magical mm. decor. I think decor is such an interesting word mm. there. And the staginess maybe of that and, and of the identification of Anna's expressions of guilt as a performance and playing a role. I, I think it's important too that when he's reunited with her, it's in the audience of, uh, of the geisha, 
the, of a play. And, you know, it's almost as though that Gurov is himself an actor. You know, he has this, this double life that he leads and he plays this role of, of the womanizer. And then he is, is taken in by that role. And I think the importance of theatricality in this, I mean, I know just for a little background too, Chekhov's wife, Olga, was an actress. And I think mm. that they ended up living together in, well, actually they rarely lived together, but I know that he ended up having to go and live in Yalta because of his tuberculosis. And she would have to be away and, and working a lot, which I, I guess turned out to be really good for their relationship because he didn't really have time for her. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I guess when she came back to Yalta, their reunions had this, maybe this sort of clandestine feeling because of the fact that she was always away and stealing time to, to come back to Yalta to visit him. And the fact that she's an actress and of course he's a playwright, there was nothing illicit that I remember in their, in their romance, but that theatrical significance I think is, is interesting that Gurov and, and Anna are these two people who are at least from, from Gurov's perspective, he's playing a role, she's playing a role, but then he realizes she's really not playing a role. She's being very serious. And then, suddenly everything takes on that that more serious element for him as well. Mm-hmm. The little dog bites. Yeah, yeah. And the next stage in that, I think, is his the scene at the train station, seeing her off in which he feels some remorse, right? So she gets oh, a letter yeah. from her husband to come home, and then they're parting. And the next step for him is to have his whole memory method of... <laughs> approaching an intimacy kind of infected a little bit yeah this is another parallel with anna karenina too right i forgot there's Mm -hmm. even a train in this one um (laughs) left alone on the platform and gazing into the dark distance gaurav listened to the churring of the grasshoppers and the hum of the telegraph wires with a feeling as if he had just woken up and he thought that now there was one more affair or adventure in his life and it too was now over and all that was left was the memory he was touched saddened and felt some slight remorse This young woman, whom he was never to see again, had not been happy with him. He had been affectionate with her and sincere, but all the same, in his treatment of her, in his tone and caresses, there had been a slight shade of mockery, the somewhat coarse arrogance of a happy man who was, moreover, almost twice her age. She had all the while called him kind, extraordinary, lofty. Obviously, he had appeared to her not as he was in reality, and therefore he had involuntarily deceived her. Here at the station, there was already a breath of autumn. The wind was cool. It's high time I headed north too, thought Gurov, leaving the platform. High time. Yeah. This regret, and again, we wonder if this is part of his usual routine, right? Ah, you know, I wasn't great with her, and I could have been kinder, and Mm -hmm. she thought so well of me, and, you know, I didn't really deserve it, and... Ah, well, you know, time to go back to Moscow. And so you wonder if this is part of the routine, or if this is, again, further evidence towards, you know, creeping towards that transformation. Yeah, is this part of his life cycle (laughs) right right. as a womanizer or is it um is he on into new territory here yet it's unclear but you know as you pointed out the whole story could be part of his life cycle or there could be a point of departure somewhere where this is new he's falling in love with someone and you know i'm reading it in that latter way just for the sake of argument in a sense but i am too but i think that none of these things are maybe truly beyond the pale until he finally gets back to Moscow. Mm-hmm. And even in the first month of being back, everything is pretty normal. And then I think that the actual real, I think there are a couple of big moments that show this true transformation. The first being the companion of his who mishears him mm-hmm. and comments on the fish, <laughs> which is just such a great moment. Mm-hmm. 
So he gets this urge to bring this out in the open, his affair with, with Anna. Mm. So first, you know, he's back in Moscow. He's immersed in that life. He's reading three newspapers a day, right? Same <laughs> sorts of problems as we have. We just do smartphones, but restaurants, clubs, dinner, dinner parties, celebrations, famous acquaintances. But the memory thing, so that, you know, that's been his mode of pseudo intimacy, that his method, as I've called it. But now it's, it's, that's the thing that defeats him, right? So it's his memories would turn into reveries and in, in his imagination, the past would mingle with what was still to be. So that's an interesting change, the past mingling with the prospective future. Anna Sergeyevna was not a dream. She followed him everywhere like a shadow and watched him. And then that's when the, he gets tormented by the desire to go beyond memory and beyond what is private and hidden and to create something public and more present in a way that, which is to say to tell someone and then he does. And that doesn't work. (laughs) He found himself speaking vaguely of love of women and no one could guess what it was about. And only his wife raised her dark eyebrows and said, you know, Dimitri, the role of fop doesn't suit you at all. (laughs) (laughs) One night as he was leaving the doctor's club together with his partner an official, he could not help himself and said, if you only knew what a charming woman I met in Yalta, the official got into the sleigh and drove off, but suddenly turned around and called out, Dmitri Dmitrich. What? You were right earlier. The sturgeon was a bit off. <laughs> yeah. So presumably in Russian, those two things sound like each other, but... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Those words, so very ordinary, for some reason suddenly made Gurov indignant, struck him as humiliating, impure, such savage manners, such faces, these senseless nights and such uninteresting, unremarkable days... Frenzied card playing, gluttony, drunkenness, constant talk about the same thing. Useless manners and conversations about the same thing took for their share the best part of one's time, the best of one's powers. And what was left in the end was some sort of curtailed, wingless life, some sort of nonsense. And it was impossible to get away or flee as if you were sitting in a madhouse or a prison camp. I'm never going on vacation again. (laughs) Right, yeah. now it's ruined everything. I love the word nonsense here. Yeah, it's so indignant. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, he's accusing people of this endless talk of the same thing. And, and uh, it's kind of what Anna was doing, you know, and that's kind of what they were doing on their vacation, too, was like mm-hmm. just talking about how boring everything was, you know, yeah. so this, this dissatisfaction is just dissatisfaction, you know, in a different place. I'm reading all of this as if Garoff is, um, you know, really self-deluded. And I think that self-delusion is a really important part of his character. Well, yeah, I think you're right about the delusion. I because however in love he thinks he is, or is, or you know, and even though the the story ends on a positive note, women ought to be suspicious of a character like this, and so should we. (laughs) We should be (laughs) suspicious that there's any lasting transformation in someone like this, and that the love will last. And of course, it's a certainty that love will be challenged and will he be up to that challenge but it's a certainty that if they do get together that they will move beyond the infatuation phase and then the question is does he have the or both of them you know do they have the emotional resources to maintain connection or will they end up with what they had in the first place you know his marriage to a cold wife let's say and her marriage to a lackey as she puts it, someone who is obsequious, obedient to authority because of his interest in status. You know, what does Gaurav see on him? Some kind of badge or belonging to some society or another? Yeah. One thing we haven't really addressed yet, which maybe we should take a step back and do that now is 
another element that makes this kind of uncomfortable, which is the similarities he sees between Anna and his young daughter. Th- that seems to be a big attraction for him. Mm-hmm. This innocence, I suppose. And his daughter is only 12 years old. She's timorous and angular. Uses those two adjectives frequently. Mm. And I take the angularity to be a product of... And similar descriptions, by the way, are in the, the mezzanine story, but her angularity to be a product of her thinness and her the fact that her, her body is evocative, at least in some ways, of a little girl's body. So maybe that's overreading that. That's certainly there in the mezzanine story. No, I agree. He talks about the undeveloped breast of Xenia, yeah. In the mezzanine, yeah, yeah. So there is something about that that innocent quality that he's looking for. But the angularity, right, turns out to be a... There's a sharpness to that, that again, I, I like to read that as a, he gets um, pricked, sorry, so to speak, by that. he gets uh, bitten or, you know, going back to the dog. He's So the timorousness and the angularity can be deceptive because they can actually become powerful forces. He can be deeply affected and wounded by them. He wants to see them as harmless, but that's not what they turn out to be. Yeah, and one wonders if this, I don't mean to suggest anything um, creepy about Humbert Humberty about it. Yeah, <laughs> this comes into play in the last on the last page, which I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But you know, there's an element maybe of um, uh, midlife crisis here, and you know, maybe um, mm-hmm. the womanizer is getting soft, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. He's gotten old, and he's just tired of doing it now. So now he's ready to settle down. But. Right, and and that attractiveness, that youthful quality, which he sees in his daughter, which represents this wellspring of possibility, I think is is what attracts him to Anna, or or maybe what he now suddenly finds transformative about Anna that might have been inherent in any number of his conquests, but which now, because of the the passing of time and the sort of the fact that he's now a man in his forties, strikes him in a, in a different way. But let's return to the story here when he when he goes to S, the town of S. You know, he takes the best room in the in the hotel in S, and there's the Nabokov's famous inkstand, um, the great inkstand on the table, gray with dust. Oh, the details at Nabokov, yeah, enjoy. Yeah. yeah, and then he he goes to her house and sees the the front door open and the the white spits running outside. Um, and there's that moment when he wants to call the dog, but his heart suddenly throbs. And in his excitement, he was unable to remember the Spitz's name. That is an interesting. And before that, he's seen um, the, the house kind of guard dogs and they've attacked a beggar at the gates. <laughs> so oh, very oh that's, obvious. that's prior to that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Reference to his situation. He's, he's essentially a beggar now. And the supposed little dog is, has been much more. And he even says that. And he's like, he, and he gets vexed at the end of this whole scene and says, here's the lady with the little dog for you talking to himself. You know, mm. you thought this was going to be so easy and simple. And, and he sees that the, the house has this fence that has spikes on it. <laughs> Very ridiculous. And and he has his, his sort of a, a generous thought, I think, which is that maybe Anna's inside amusing herself with another man. Mm-hmm. And he says, um, or he thinks that that was so natural in the situation of a young woman who had to look at this cursed fence from morning till evening. Mm. That's really interesting. And I think that is indicative of a transformation too, that this this thought of her with another man arouses um, a kind of a sympathy for her situation mm. rather than a, je- a jealousy. I just suddenly flash back to the, what do you want scene? You know, he's more attuned mm-hmm. now to her inner life and, and what she might want and why she might want it. 
So then they go to to the geisha, to the the opening night. And uh, this moment when he sees her, I think is just so beautiful and wonderful. She comes in and she sat in the third row. And when Gurov looked at her, his heart was wrung. And he realized clearly that there was now no person closer, dearer, or more important for him in the whole world. This small woman, lost in the provincial crowd, not remarkable for anything, with a vulgar lorgnette in her hand, now filled his whole life, was his grief, his joy, the only happiness he now wished for himself. And to the sounds of the bad orchestra, with its trashy local violins, he thought how beautiful she was. He thought and dreamed. Mm. And that, that to me seems, you know, because they're the, the vulgar lorgnette and the, the trashy violins, because it's kind of shot through with this sort of dingy provincialism, mm. this, this seems to me to be very, very um, sincere, uh, unlike the, the, the magical decor of that, that mountain, you know, realization earlier. Mm. It's very moving to me. And then, then we see her husband that he is like stooping, like you said, and he nodded his head at every step and seemed like he was perpetually bowing. The badge of some learned society gleamed in his buttonhole, like the mm. badge of a lackey. <laughs> <laughs> so he joins her in that, you know, she set him up to, to see him that way. Obviously she's, she's, influenced his prejudices about the guy so that when he sees that badge he's primed to see it as the badge of a lackey but i love that i love that he's joined her point of view so fully it occurs to me that maybe they could arrange this so that that garov and anna can be together and this this lackey can hook up with garov's wife and everyone will be happy <laughs> yes the swingers version of this uh story. right yeah yeah they, they seem like a good good pair um but good pair uh, of couples yes yeah. Very well matched. And then the he approaches her. And there's this great moment that Nabokov points out. The two of them are, are talking with each other. And on this landing above them, there are these two high school boys that are smoking. Mm. And this really is one of those details, like the, the ink stand that kind of passes by. You know, it's very filmic. Like it's all being caught on camera. And the details are, are relatively random. And Nabokov points out that if this was a story by Montpassant, there would be some consequence to this mm-hmm. detail. You know, mm-hmm. they'll be they'll be found out because the boys will gossip and it'll get back to the husband and and um, or I think he even says like you know the ink stand is maybe like where he's going to write a consequential letter or so you know something is going to move the plot forward here and there's going to be some comeuppance or so, something that that spins out from this and instead it's it's wholly inconsequential. You know, it's just a detail. The boys. Boys are just there smoking. They don't tell anyone and, and that's it. So, so there's these great moments that contribute so powerfully to the realism of Chekhov that it seems as though he's just recording life. You know, he's just recording things exactly as they happen. And there are lots of sort of false blinds and dead ends at, in every corner. Yeah, this is what I meant by meandering. Although I know he's also known for, you know, where there's the whole Chekhov's gun, right? Right, um, right where if it appears in the first act, it must go off before the end. Or does it go off in the third, fourth, fifth? I don't know. Anyway, it's got to go off at some point. You get a sense of realism because it's like someone is there just recording what they see. It's not, someone's, it's not just someone inventing exposition or symbols or something that will be a, the material of a literary flourish. It just is what it is. That's, there it is. Here's the world. And um, I'm describing it because it is what it is, <laughs> mm-hmm. not because it serves my purposes. Of course, that does serve his purposes as a, <laughs> as a realist. So we get their regular meetings in Moscow. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. She has a tells her husband she has a female disorder. She has to go to the doctor for her, which is in a way sort of, is in a yep. way accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's another epiphany, right, where he gets sick of you know we've seen this before in him wanting to tell someone about their affair. And this is after he's been explaining something to his daughter, answering her questions. But he gets sick of leading two different lives, one that's secretive and one that's out in the open. Because the secretive life is more important and true in a way than the one that's out in the open. So here's the passage. And we can discuss how truth enters into this. Because it seems it's not apparent in what's preceded that this is going to be the big payoff in the story, these reflections about truth. But here it goes. He had two lives, an apparent one seen and known by all who needed it, filled with conventional truth and conventional deceit, which perfectly resembled the lives of his acquaintances and friends, and another that went on in secret. And by some strange coincidence, perhaps an accidental one, everything that he found important, interesting, necessary, in which he was sincere and did not deceive himself, which constituted the core of his life, occurred in secret from others. Well, everything that made up his lie, his shell in which he hid in order to conceal the truth, for instance, his work at the bank, his arguments at the club, his quote-unquote inferior race, his attending official celebrations with his wife, all this was in full view. And he judged others by himself, did not believe what he saw, and always supposed that every man led his own real and very interesting life under the cover of secrecy, as under the cover of night." Every personal existence was upheld by a secret, and it was perhaps partly for that reason that every cultivated man took such anxious care that his personal secret should be respected. So another great mm. passage. Mm-hmm. This, I guess, maybe gives credence to my, my thought early on that Garoff is, is a real self-hating guy because he thinks the inferior race is, is the one that is interested in him <laughs> and the one that he's freest to, to be around, and he thinks that the inferior race women of course um <laughs> is uh <laughs> is empty and reducible to types and you know maybe stupider or whatever and and that that is of course himself right and now because he's living this secret life this this life which which contains some joy for him in certain ways but which is necessary to, to remain hidden then he reads everyone else as having this secret life as well and so there's maybe a little bit of a positive <laughs> movement in that that he he now sees um people as having secret hidden depths where before or or you know at least this this alternate existence which may be very seedy at least there's some maybe some growth in that that before he he thought well i'm empty so everyone else or at least these these women who want to share my my company mm. must be empty but now he sees hidden possibilities albeit sinful ones but that's a, a positive development i i think yeah that's very good it's really interesting that at the very end of the story we get something it seems important to me thrown in as an aside, which is that, you know, this whole thing about, for instance, his work at the bank, his arguments at the club, his inferior race. And we're left wondering, what? What, is, what does he mean by his inferior race? Is he a member of some minority? Is he Jewish? Is there some connection, um, which I thought you, you might have been making, but between his view of women as inferiors and the fact that he may have been mistreated in some way. I don't know if that's what's going mm-hmm. on here, if that's right, or if this is... If he means this in some other way, it's unclear. At the beginning, too, we're, we're told a little bit of his background, and, and he was trained to be an opera singer, briefly, or he, he did train oh, briefly to be that. an opera singer. Yeah, and then he, was, he actually studied to be a philologist, 
and then ended up working in a bank. So he has these, you know, a couple of thwarted elements in, in his background, but that studying of, of language, right? And that's interesting too, because uh, he notes that his wife is interested in the orthographic or I, f- I forget the name of it that, what is, where is it? Yeah. She used the new orthography, called her husband, not Dmitri, but Dmitri. So the, so the mm. I between the D and the M and, and he considered her none too bright. So that interest in, in language, I don't know why I'm, I'm getting the impression that this speaks to your point and that philologist note is important here that language as a, a uniter of people uh, across races, perhaps especially in Russia, but also as a cover. And here, of course, he's lying. So uh, he's, he's wondering what hidden realities are, are beneath other people's appearances. Of course, we use language to lie all the time. So I don't know what that says. Maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree here, just to use a little dog metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's explore more of this, the question of the truthful here. Part of what's dishonest in what he describes is connected to the whole lackey thing. It's the ways in which our interest in status and it's accommodated men, right? To go back to King Lear, the ways in which we in, engage in a lot of superficiality because those superficial trappings like the badge of her husband are signifiers of our place in society. So this, this actually goes towards the whole inferior race thing as well. And you have to keep up appearances. You have to be respectable. You know, you're supposed to have a wife, even if you're, or a husband, even if you're unhappy with that person, you're supposed to stay with them. The honesty involved in intimacy and finding someone to love are kind of put to the side. So there may be something here, and I I know this is one of my hobby horses, but about the intervention of status and questions of how one is seen by others interferes with truer connections between people. There's a truer component of the self that evades status in favor of longing, in favor of vulnerability, in favor of intimacy. And incidentally, that truer life is something that we associate with the instinctual. And the instinctual, right, is what gets covered up by the trappings of civilization. So I think we go back to the dog again, where we we could see the littleness of the dog as a kind of attenuation of instinct or repression of it, attenuation or repression of desire or a representation of the way in which it becomes atrophied or or hidden or dressed up as something cute and nice, especially with women, right? So this is, you know, mm. part of her predicament being inside the gates, the demand that her desire and her wishes remain hidden and the, um, the burden of that. You know, there's an important connection between this desire for honesty and for something to be out in the open with his desire for actual real love and real intimacy Hmm. and then we're set up for the climax of the story where he can actually express that does that make sense isn't yeah totally so i i'm just thinking of the moment where they've been seeing each other regularly in moscow but there's a point where in one of these meetings he kisses her like they haven't seen each other for years and she's Mm -hmm. crying and they're living a secret broken life but he has the realization this is not a love affair that will end which is interesting that despite being so impassioned it's not clear before this that he's had this idea that this is it this is the one that this is going to continue forever Mm. and then he sees himself in the mirror and he sees his gray hair and his loss of good looks and then he thinks about her and the fact that the same thing she's aging as well 
and mm. and so he has compassion for quote this life still so warm and beautiful but probably already near the point where it would begin to fade and wither like his own life and then there's talk of how women have loved him in the past you know so not himself but a man their imagination had created whom they had greedily sought all their lives and then when they had noticed their mistake they had still loved him and um and then there's talk of forgiveness of they've forgiven each other things they're ashamed of in the past and they forgive everything in the present and they have a love that's transformed them both and a deep compassion and sincerity and tenderness and things like that. So this is very interesting to me because he's, he's noticing his gray hair and that doesn't make him then reflect upon the relative youth of Anna and how attractive she is to him for that reason. But this idea that she, as you say, is, is also going to age. And uh, I think I've mentioned in the past how fascinated I am with eye color in literature Mm. And it was noted at the very beginning that Anna has gray eyes. Mm. And Anna Karenina also had gray eyes, which is interesting. But anyway, she, she comes in for this, this scene. She's wearing his favorite gray dress. And, uh, mm. and she doesn't look very good. She's pale and she looks tired. And so there's a, this autumnal you know, quality to, to both of them that he's registering. And, and that also seems to have lends a lot of sincerity that he's not just looking at her to sustain this this sort of you know midlife crisis fantasy but he's looking at them both on a on a continuum and and recognition that both of them are you know mortal and and neither is particularly young perhaps or neither of them are she especially of course is not going to remain young and this very tender moment where he's he it occurs to him that they are both two birds of passage mm-hmm. a male and a female yeah. who've been caught and forced to live in separate cages you know, I don't know all of that. I mean, you know, the gray links them, of course. But this real, uh, you know, reminds me, too, of of Annie Hall, come to think of it, and, yeah. and what you said about nostalgia's awareness of suffering, and that this is uh, very reminiscent of that. Yeah. See, in Woody Allen, I saw it as a positive. The possibility of navigating love in the present, intimacy in the present, by way of trying to think about it as you might think about it in the future once it's gone or once it's part of the past and to, to appreciate it with that nostalgic frame of mind as a way of uh, giving it more longevity and, and preserving it. So to overcoming the whole problem of the loss of novelty in relationships because novelty plays a role in producing excitement and um, it's, it doesn't last forever, obviously. So. But the way he used it at the beginning of the story was he, he wanted to create these memories. He wanted to have superficial affairs and then to get some sort of deeper kick out of them once they were gone and once the women were safely out of his life and then he could have these memories these nice memories there's a quality of mourning here which there is to nostalgia as well and the mourning is just you know what he describes part of real love is giving up on the ideal you mourn the ideal and you give up on these you know these idealized qualities what he says of women right women who have loved them as a man their imagination has created so in order to come to love a person for who who they really are you have to get beyond loving them as a signifier of something again i'm thinking of the badge of her husband Mm. the lackey they can't be just a badge they can't be um just a uh symbol of mommy and daddy as my grandmas might say or of, of something perfect you notice that they are flawed you notice that they're going to age you notice that they've done shameful things and you forgive all of that and you feel gratitude that they will 
forgive you of that in return. Mm. And there's something more honest about that and more, um, again, it gets us outside of that realm of superficial looks and representations, you know, the kind of things that he got sick of in society um, towards the um, genuine intimacy, which, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so the the last paragraph of the whole story is, um, and it seemed that just a little more and the solution would be found and then a new beautiful life would begin. And it was clear to both of them that the end was still far, far off and that the most complicated and difficult part was just beginning. Very beautiful. Yeah, just uh, such a strange way to... (laughs) Well, and ambiguous, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, that was fun. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the Partial Examined Life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript, which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following the regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week. Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails. And sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening. <laughs>